Cam, and this is the Nerdbook Review. Today, Barry and I will be talking about Virtual Light by William Gibson. Next week, we'll actually be Barry as well, um, and Katie will be on the next episode as well as we talk about Snow Crash. With both of these episodes, we will be referring to the other book quite a bit. We found a lot of similarities between the two books, and so we're going to air them back to back, and maybe after that episode, you, um, some of you guys can tell us which one of the two that you liked better if you've read them both. As I mentioned, after this week, it will be Snow Crash, and then The Song of All, and then I believe we're going to throw in an interview, and then hopefully we'll start getting back into uh, our normal routine, a little bit more of author interviews. I have several author interviews uh, set up, just waiting for their new books to come out. Uh, Since I like to stay spoiler-free, we try to review the first book in the series, And I think from here on out, as much as possible, I'm going to try to do author interviews um, whenever I can get them for second books or third books or whatever um, are coming out in a series. And so um, I'll continue to review first books in a series always and then do author interviews with the second. All righty. Before we get to the review, I will give you the usual spiel. You can reach us on Facebook with the page Nerdbook Review on Gmail at nerdbookreview at gmail.com, on Twitter at nerdbookreview. Basically, if you Google the Nerdbook Review, you will find us. If you would be so kind as to leave a rating and review on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. Once again, that is just as important for us as it is for you to review an author on Goodreads and Amazon. It really helps get the name out there. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Cam. I'm Barry. <laughs> and, and this is the Nerdbook Review. Today, Barry and I are going to be reviewing Virtual Light by William Gibson. Barry, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm having a marvelous evening. Yeah, we had some good spaghetti. And uh, now I'm having a glass we, of wine. And... We had some sp- Peggy and meatballs. Remember King of the Hill? You didn't put a spoonful of orange juice in it, so it's not quite Spapeggy and meatballs. <laughs> That's true. I remember when uh, Bobby gets the gout oh, from yeah. all of the liver and stuff, and uh, my dad, he gets the gout. Just like uh, any family members I have, they get the diabetes. Did he, does he eat a lot of liver? Uh, my dad just eats a lot of red meat in general. So anyways, but he has to, like my family has to add the to everything so it's not just diabetes it's the diabetes yep anyways all right well that's enough of that uh sidetrack uh i'm going to give you guys the book info real quick uh book stats and all that stuff so this book is 304 paperback pages long and was published in 1993 in 94 it was nominated for the hugo and locust awards uh gibson's most famous book was actually his first uh neuromancer it is the book that is widely credited with, credited with starting the cyberpunk genre. Uh, he has more than 15 novels and many short stories. He's also written for TV and movies. He actually wrote a little bit for the X-Files. Um, he had some books that were laced, uh, some movies that were based on the world that he created, the sprawl world that uh, Neuromancer um, was part of. And then obviously we will be talking more about Gibson. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... Matrix in his book Neuromancer and everywhere. I mean, it. If you need an idea of what cyberpunk is, just watch the Matrix. That kind of hits the uh, archetypes of it pretty hard, right? Yeah. Well, uh, he's credited with um with coming up with the term cyberspace 
And he also, in Neuromancer, described the Matrix, uh, you know, as the way the, the web is set up. So he actually, like, you know, created those terms. Barry, will you read the very short Goodreads blurb? Okay. 2005. That seemed like the future at one point, didn't it? Now it's the past. Welcome to NoCal and SoCal, the uneasy sister states at what used to be California. Here the millennium has come and gone, leaving it leaving in its wake only stunned survivors. In Los Angeles, Barry Rydell is a former armed response rent-a-cop now working for a bounty hunter. Chevette Washington is a bicycle messenger turned pickpocket who impulsively snatches a pair of innocent-looking sunglasses. But these are no ordinary shades. What you can see through these high-tech specs can make you rich or get you killed. Now, Barry and Chevette are on the run, zeroing in on the digitalized heart of Dad America, where pure information is the greatest high and a mind could be a terrible thing to crash. Awesome. Uh, I'm actually glad that you read the, you have the book with you and you read the uh, dust jacket cover because we, I had the Goodreads blurb and it is really short. So uh, my take then is this is a gritty dystopian America where the rich live amazing lives and the poor live third world existences. All right, so you know what's funny is I'm glad. Also, I didn't realize that the book was supposed to be set in 2005. I knew it was somewhere like in the near future from when it was written in the 90s. Um, let's let's talk about William Gibson first. Um, as I said, he created the term, the phrase cyberspace, and during especially in the 80s and 90s, he was super influential. He kind of created the cyberpunk genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could give credit, and we talked about it on the stars, my destination, influencing him, but this is the beginning of cyberpunk uh, in proper. One thing that uh, uh, we talked about Alfred Bester and the stars, my destination, and that has some cyberpunk elements to it, but uh, William Gibson is the person who decided to start you writing about uh, computers and cyberspace. That's something that Bester didn't have in his writings. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because I actually just... Uh, Barry and I um, had decided to do this book, and I had just gotten done uh, reading Virtual Light, and an interview with William Gibson popped up on NPR, and they, he was, they were talking about it, that he was actually talking with one of the guys that... that created the internet before it was even, you know, like fully wide. It was just at, where was it, like MIT or Caltech or somewhere like maybe Stanford. Anyways, I can't remember specifically, but he was talking with one of the creators and he started talking about like, they're like, he actually said, why did you guys allow people to be on there anonymously? Like, don't you think that's going to cause crime? And he said that the, the creator said, well, why would someone do that? It's never going to be like massive. This is a you know, like a closed network. And he's like, well, this isn't how it's always going to be. And there's going to be a lot of crime because of the things that you guys are allowing to happen. And who was right? That clearly Gibson was right. <laughs> 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 but yeah, he just, I mean, like, that's one, that's one of the things that he did was he was just so early. And 84, is that what I said that Neuromancer was? That's pretty close to right. 84, yes. Yep. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't the, the World Wide Web when he started um, w with Neuromancer. And Neuromancer is something I haven't read myself, but is supposed to be, like, super influential to 
I mean, it just started. It started the genre, the cyberpunk genre. Mm-hmm. Have you read uh, Neuromancer? Yes, I have read Neuromancer. It's a good book. I don't want to get into a full review now, yeah. but it is interesting reading like what people, where people thought the internet would go, and how it actually has gone. When you go back, the book almost the, the it does seem dated because in this cyber world we live, that's completely different from what actually happened. It's actually almost hard to conceive a little bit at times, but. I mean, there's many great parts of that book. I encourage anyone to read it. It definitely has like really good characters, really good writing, really good high faced, high paced plot, and incredible world building. But I guess that's not what the review is about today. We'll talk about virtual light. <laughs> okay. And then I do want to talk real quick. We're going to do a review at some point for Snow Crash. You had the one of the main protagonists also being a courier. And basically being a dystopian future written in, you know, in, in 2000, it might have been written in 2005, actually, Snow Crash, somewhere around that range. I think it's like, I'm not sure right off the top of my head. Oh, it's right there. Let me use the force to get the book so I don't have to move away from the microphone. Oh, uh, the force is strong, but not, is it's kind of weak with me, but it worked well enough. Thanks for picking up the book for me. Appreciate it. Oh, um, 1992. Snow Crash is 92? Uh, yeah. The version I was reading was, it must have been a reprint, and it was like 2005. So I had to completely take back everything that I've said about Snow Crash, because Snow Crash isn't a ripoff, because Snow Crash is first. There, there's definitely some similarities of those, but like to give William Gibson credit, he created the um, cyberpunk before Neil Stevenson did. Yeah, probably were writing the book, books at the same time. They weren't both working across desks from each other at Cyberpunk Corporate either. No. So anyway, so I'm going to have to change my opinion on Snow Crash. I'm- I don't really think it... Uh, if I'm think- I don't. Yeah, I don't think uh, William Gibson was looking at what Neil Stevenson was doing either and saying, ooh, I'm going to do something. Like I mean, sure, they're reading each other's books and getting ideas, but they're not directly copying each other. Yeah, well, but I was thinking, though, that uh, since I thought that Snow Crash was written 10 years later than it actually was, I was thinking that it was basically the same book, but not done quite as well. But anyways, so uh, just the last things on uh, William Gibson, as we talked about Neuromancer, it was the first book that won the, what's called like the sci-fi triple crown of the Hugo Nebula and the Philip K. Dick Award. And it was his first novel. So, I mean, that's one of those things, though, you all, you can only go downhill from <laughs> your first novel. That yeah, like is Lincoln kinda... Park, you know. They, <laughs> they never topped their first album, in my opinion. Ever. My humble but ever-present opinion. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I don't know if this isn't cool to say, but I liked their uh, Transformers album, though. Yeah, it was a good album, but not as good as their first album. Okay, I'll give you that. I'm holding strong here. <laughs> Should we do a... I'm just messing with you. I love how you can edit this thing because we're just going on so many awesome tangents right now. I know. Now. We're already like 15 I'm glad minutes we're, in. I'm so freaking glad we're not live. <laughs> I know. This would up. be an abortion if it was. Oh, now you have to cut something. Uh, yeah. Oh, you have to we cut could call, that. Say, instead of an abortion, this is an abomination. Of abomination. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm stuttering today. I said an abomination. <laughs> All right. So let's get into actually talking about the book. Um, I think we've talked enough about William Gibson and what he did. So, we are in a dystopian uh, near future, I guess now past, 2005, so it was about 10 years ahead of what he was writing. And one thing that's important to note, too, that in the early 90s when he was writing this, AIDS was a really big deal. 
um, people were still dying very regularly from AIDS and there wasn't uh, the the cocktail of drugs. So that's going to be kind of something that plays a theme in this novel. Yeah, and this is right around the time that uh, Magic Johnson came down with the disease, and in my opinion, which was the... At least well, I was born in 81, so maybe I don't have a good uh, grasp of this, but in my opinion, that was the height of the... Um, public awareness of the disease oh no least. i'll totally i'll totally give you that i mean that was kind of like it changed when with magic johnson having aids because now it wasn't just a gay disease and so it took it into a totally different realm like you know society especially like in the late 80s with reagan or i guess reagan was 80 to 88 but i mean he you know basically like didn't put any money towards aids research and he kind of shoved it off as a you know as a is the a perverted disease basically you know mm-hmm. because um a majority of people early on that were getting it were gay but then once you like you said once a- magic johnson got aids i really feel like that changed a lot it's funny to think about that isn't it like yeah yeah it is crazy and that was when i was a kid i mean i was afraid of it for a long time like um, even irrationally, of course, but like I was afraid <laughs> of, you know, the AIDS virus at that time. Well, think like people, I mean, you thought that you could get it from hugging people. I mean, you know, that's the kind of mm-hmm. the kind of misinformation, especially in Idaho, where clearly we weren't at the forefront of the like the AIDS crisis. I mean, there probably weren't a whole lot of people in Idaho anywhere that had AIDS. And those who did, we, you know, like like we were interacting a whole lot as children. More likely that there's more now than there were then. It's probably true. So that's going to play a, uh, uh, you know, kind of a pivotal, I have a background in there where there was a man who they were able to use to cure AIDS. And it's kind of like a cool background story that's always going on in the novel that we don't find out the whole story until the very end of the book, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, our two main characters, uh, Barry and Chevette. Uh, Barry is an ex-cop. I love it when characters are named after me, you know? <laughs> when I was a kid, I took a very a great liking to Barry Larkin, Barry Bonds, Barry Sanders. I was like, look at that guy out there. Great player, three great sport athletes, and they had my first name. They were always my boys. Is that why you're a Reds fan? No, I like the okay. color red, but you no. know, it added to why I like Barry Larkin so much. Amazing shortstop, great shortstop. He would have won more Gold Gloves if he didn't play in the league at the same time as Ozzie Smith, right? Yeah. Well, he still won like fourteen, didn't he? He still won. He won like three or two, two or three. But Larkin still, did. Yeah, but oh, like, uh, Ozzie Smith is the one. Ozzie Smith won like, like fourteen. Yeah, okay. he was. He was like the Scotty Pippen of shortstops at the time. <laughs> so uh, Barry, he was an ex-cop. He is from Tennessee. He got he was a cop for a very short time. He got fired. He actually killed a guy um, while during a hostage situation. He thought that the the wife and child were dead, and then the guy shoots this like basically gas gun right next to his head, kind of traumatizes him, and he shoots the guy, and he gets fired. But Barry, what happens when he gets fired? Like what? How does he end up in L.A.? Well, he gets on this show, uh, Cops in Trouble. You know, and then they fly him out, like, and then that embarrasses him. So, like, they fly him to L.A. and help him out the last minute. And then something even more spectacular occurs. A serial killer is found, and then they 
dump him immediately, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Like, they cut off his credit card, debit card, like, that day even. You know, they kick him out of the hotel that he's staying in. Yeah, there's this weird reality show, Cops in Trouble. That's a lot like Cops, which was popular yeah. at the time. Yeah, that's true. Huh? Cops was probably pretty big, pretty big back then. I remember, like, watching that at my great-grandparents' house when I was a kid because my grandpa, great-grandpa loved it. But, um... So, yeah, like they find like a serial killer and so then they dump him and fly off to start videotaping and, and defending this serial killer and because, you know, he it's a ra- big ratings charge. So then he ends up going and becoming a rent-a-cop and that's kind of how he ends up getting... Um, well, sorry, they, I guess... They what, fly him to Sa- San Francisco for his rent-a-cop. He, remember that California is two different states here. They're completely different from each other. So now he's almost in a different world in San Francisco instead of uh, Los Angeles. And the main part of the story, the meat of like the plot, is going to occur in San Francisco. Yeah, and San Francisco is pretty dystopian at this point. Uh, it definitely doesn't take the gentrification route that it has taken in our world. Um there, the, the Golden Gate Bridge is no longer in use, and it, not only is it not in use, but well, that's actually a, the Bay Bridge they're talking about. Much oh, is it the Bay Bridge? bridge? Oh, yeah. I thought it was the Golden Gate Bridge that they were much longer bridge. Oh. a lot more space for poor people to be on. Oh, really? It's, I didn't realize it was the Bay Bridge. I thought it was a Golden Gate Bridge. So yes, yeah, so we're going to deal with, um, as Barry said, the Bay Bridge in between San Francisco and Oakland, and the bridge has been abandoned. And is now a giant shanty town where the poorest of the poor live. The cops don't really go there. The uh, the people just kind of build wherever they can. And it kind of gave me that gritty third world feel. Mm-hmm. It definitely did. In a way, they do uh, anticipate. The author does anticipate the. Um, housing prices of San Francisco because so many people are homeless and that's where they all go to the Bay Bridge. And there was a lot of, uh, they, they allude to a lot of uh, previous events, oh, like a revolution in the city that led to the bridge. It was it had started as a protest where they uh, protesters like stopped all traffic on the bridge and then there was never traffic again. It wasn't like they just shut it down. The protesters shot it down and it stayed like almost like a permanent occupy San Francisco Bay Bridge type situation, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, and then and I'm gonna say this, like I'm gonna try not to compare this novel too many times to uh, Snow Crash, especially after my uh, revelation that I was reading a later edition and that it was actually written prior, just prior. But I think that that is one thing that that makes me like this one better then snow crash just a little bit is that i felt like snow crash was a little too because we had the pro- main protagonist of hero protagonist quite the name there yeah <laughs> yeah but he's even though he's supposed to be poor he and the same thing with uh the the girl in it that i'm whose name is eluding me like yt yt there we are i don't know how i could forget yt both of them though are what are what really constitutes middle class for that time you know that dystopia whereas i really feel like barry and chevette are truly lower class you know especially chevette i mean she was abandoned by her mother um put into a like a terrible correctional facility where it's alluded that bad things happen to her she escapes and this is up in oregon and she makes it all the way down to the bay bridge and she's almost dead when she when she gets there, mm-hmm. and so she's clear. She has no um, 
no safety net. And there's no true, like, uh, well, I don't want to do a snow crash review here, too, but like you said, in this book, there's not really much cyberspace at all. There's, there is, uh, like, you know, if you're poor, you have to live in reality. Hero protagonist, he had his, he lived poor, but he had his, uh, he was he was a king in the cyberspace. Yeah, and not only that, but like, and he's poor, but he's also one of the best hackers in the world. And he and basically he's poor because he's a screw up. Like, Chevette doesn't have any any. Um, she's poor because of circumstance and because that's, this is the world, you know. Like there wasn't a safety net for her when her mother left and she's only 14 years old or somewhere in that range, you know, mm-hmm. and she makes it down and she's still a teenager. And even in Barry, like his dad was probably middle class, like lower middle class, but Barry, you know, he screws up and he'd be in tr- real trouble if it weren't for the fact that cops and trouble gets him out to the West coast. Mm-hmm. And then he still screws up. Basically, how Barry and Chevette meet is that Barry gets he there's a a cyber um, hack basically that gets him fired from his uh, rent a cop job after he he crashes his house in, or his giant car, like armored vehicle that they ride in. I picture a, it as a Hummer. I always Humvee. picture it as a Did Hummer. You? I picture it as a Hummer with like a Pete Porgard on the front of it. That's how I <laughs> picture it. Maybe a little bit more armor. Yeah, well, it's and it's a it's a Land Rover, but it has like six or eight wheels, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, and so he crashes into the house because he thinks that there's like a hostage situation going on where the father has killed the mom and the help and then has the kids being held hostage, but really they got hacked their network and so and the mom was actually having an affair and it basically is just used to to open there to bring that out into the open so he can divorce her and so the uh, i don't feel like that's a spoiler because that that's all no, before really. the it's all the beginning it's this all the beginning before, this is before the um main thing that, of the story that's, yeah. that's, that starts driving the plot even happens which i guess now might be a good time to talk about yeah huh? So Barry is supposed to be as 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 Mr. Smith here has um, said at the beginning. Barry is supposed to be um, helping like a private eye find Chevette, who has stolen something very important. The book cover says, you know, this pair of virtual reality glasses. Yeah, and so he takes. He's supposed to be stopping her, but he realizes that they're about to kill her, and then I he he is so impulsive that he stops and helps her instead. And that's basically what sets the whole like rest of the main, you know, plot. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the end of spoilers because it's just the beginning, but Chevette steals these glasses, not because she's trying to steal something of incredible value, which they are. And you'll find out these things are of incredible value, but she just steals them out of spite because some guy's being a jerk at a party and she just wants to, and then she even leaves him in the party and then comes back and says, you know what? He was being a jerk. I have to steal something from him. And she steals these glasses. So just a like an impulsive decision, stealing the first thing she saw from this guy. She happened to steal the one thing that could get her into a huge chase that would will drive the entire plot of the entire book yeah and it's like and it really is huge and and not in the same way that like snow crash you know where but i do like how this is where i kind of keep getting into these things the the cult though the like the the christianity cult that's so big in this one that's hilarious hilarious yeah they they watch tv 
and they think they find Jesus in uh, old TV shows and in movies. And uh, like they, this guy's just living in a bunker telling them to, to watch TV to find God. Yeah, that's hilarious. It's just like, you know, coming right out of the era where there was a lot of televangelists. It's just great satire. I love it. I love every bit of it. Um, but one thing they didn't get into, which, you know, they just, you know, they, uh, I think they should have talked about, like, you know, if you wanted this to kind of represent reality, is Chevette goes throughout the book a lot of time without just losing these sunglasses. Who doesn't lose their sunglasses every five minutes, right? <laughs> That's true, huh? I mean, this guy, I mean, why did they know? What if he just left them somewhere? Anybody, Everybody loses their sunglasses all the time. You know, she never just leaves them on the top of her head and just starts walking around <laughs> for a while like, ooh, where, where'd my sunglasses go? Oh, man, I lost her valuable look. No, it never happens. You know, I'm say, <laughs> come on, Gibson, you could have written a little bit of that in there, right? Yeah. Other than that, you know. Yeah. Mad props, Gibson. So, um, I think that we've probably gone as far as we can in the story. Um, we It feels like we jumped around a whole lot more than... That was actually just the very, very beginning of the book, yeah. you know? She and, steals glasses, Barry meets Chevette, and then adventure begins. Yeah. And the the book... What I... Like I said, the, the getting into, like, all of the, like, did we like it and all that kind of stuff, like, what I really liked about it was how gritty I felt like it was. Like, I felt like we are on a collision course with something like this in our own world, you know? I mean, maybe not quite so uh, dystopian as this, but I do feel like if we don't deal with um, income inequality, at some point you're going to start dealing with, you know, this sort of, this scale of issues. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a lot. Like Gibson is very prophetic in his writing. You know, if you don't, even if you don't like him, you got to say he hits what's happened since when he started writing Neuromancer to now. He hits a lot of it pretty close to the mark. Maybe yeah. not exactly how the internet works, but he hits a lot of it. Like all, he hits the nail <laughs> through the head at times. Well, and I like that he, especially tech wise, I really feel like he does a good job of not being too far out there in the future, you know, the mm-hmm. same way that I feel like Snow Crash maybe does, that I feel like tech, like that if you're, that if things are as broken down where there's not even a real functioning government anymore in Snow Crash, it would be hard for tech to get that far ahead. Mm-hmm. This one's a little less hard sci-fi than um, Neuromancer, in my opinion. Okay. And I've never, like I said, I haven't read Neuromancer, so it's hard for me to say anything about that. But I think, though, that... It really feels to me like they hit a like he hit a good tech wise for what things would be, and especially some of this stuff is just for the like the ultra rich still live pretty amazing lives. The one guy who's the heir to um, the like the largest fortune in the world, he just goes on he just parties nonstop throughout the world, and he just schedules hotels that they they rent out hotels. And they have a party for, say, a week in San Francisco. And then they'll fly for a week to Mexico City. And then they'll go to London. And then, you know, they just travel throughout the entire world partying nonstop. Yeah, that definitely happens. Um, but then you have the the poor, you know, who are living on a shanty town in San Francisco with no medical care, basically, you know? yeah. This book is really good. I mean, it's a high, there's some high-paced action in it at times. One thing that you'll see in in it happens in Neuromancer. In fact, I think Snowcraft Neil Stevenson does the same thing. Is like 
cyberpunks from my experience of it they love to world build they love to sometimes world build throughout the novel they don't just use the world building at the beginning like there'll be some like fast-paced action scene then like you know you want to know what happens next and it'll cut to some more world building and you know it does sometimes slow the novel down but a lot of times with his writing it's it still holds your attention like you want to figure out like more about this world and you're like just wow this is awesome I mean, it just it does skip around a little bit, though. So I don't th- expect like a full blown, like fast paced, like pedal to the metal action scene after action scene after action scene. You get them in spurts, though. You do, but I think in comparison to Snow Crash, there are far fewer moments where you get completely taken out of the story for world building. There isn't the. I feel like in Virtual Light. There's there isn't a there isn't a a ten page or a fifteen page world building scene though later on right you're gonna have the world building that will, that can take you out of that a little bit but I don't feel like it's overwhelming in virtual light in any way right to me um, I think that the action continues enough in between mm-hmm. I agree um Barry what did you what was your uh, what were what was your favorite part, and what was maybe your least favorite part in this one? I guess is a good way to to think of, talk about this compared okay. to. Okay, hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I think my my favorite part of the movie is just like how like the, the world building in the beginning. I thought the beginning was just it hooked me, and like the first hundred pages, I was just on this ride. I'm getting to know this crazy world. I'm getting to know this weird cop Barry. I'm getting to know Chevette, and I'm just turning those pages, wanting to know what happens next. And they're they're building the world. They're we're getting to know these villains after them. You know, they one another, another common archetype is a lot of uh, villains in cyberpunk from what I've experienced. They have a lot of decorative characteristics. They have like some either like some certain race. Like they have some certain, uh, like the like the main villain in this has like gold teeth. That they talk about <laughs> yeah. a lot. I think that part was really good. Um, I honestly think the payoff, like the I'm not going to tell you what it was, but like the mystery surrounding the glasses didn't um, blow my mind when I found out what it was for. Um, I didn't. That wasn't like the my favorite thing. I don't think that made the book any better. I think the climax left me wanting a little bit, but you know, it was still a g- enjoyable book. But I'd have to say that was my and the climax scene wasn't incredibly amazing. It's almost like a great movie that starts off great well and ends in a way where you're like, oh, that was a good movie, instead of saying it was a great movie. That's so that the reason I actually asked you that this question was I wanted to see if that's what you were going to say because I'm I know we can't talk specifically about it but yeah the ending was clever but not earth-shattering mm-hmm. I thought and and I can see where the where the consequences are still huge but they're not huge in in terms of like massive explosions type things, you know, like that maybe I was expecting mm-hmm. with the end, but I still loved it and I thought it was clever. Yeah. But it wasn't uh, the most uh, earth shattering ending to a book. And for me, the, my favorite part by far was just the grittiness. I felt 
that it was very real in terms I, it felt real to me for a cyberpunk novel it did feel real it did not it doesn't go into it doesn't go matrix which i think you know i i hate to keep bringing up snow crash but i felt like snow crash gets matrixy on me and felt too glamorous for the you know the hellhole of a world that it really was and i feel that this one just stays so gritty and real that I, I really was able to stay in that movie in my mind, you know, like for a long time. I never, I didn't get pulled out of that. I could imagine, I really felt like I could imagine the Bay Bridge with like just shacks, you know, set up all over it. They're like tin and tarp and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I just, and just, uh, it kind of made me think of like a market in China or something like that, you know, in a, or in, in like some Southeast Asian city. Like I just I loved the bridge and the world that they occupied. Like there wasn't anything just completely crazy and out there, really. Mm-hmm. One thing about the glasses, like when you find out and you do find out why they're such a hot commodity, it's almost a disappointment. Like they're I feel like the glasses, you know, when you find out what they're for, they're kind of like, well, what's so wrong with that? That's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, like, what's a, so big deal? That's not evil. That's kind of nice. But, I mean, I guess, you know, it could be ter- considered evil in a way. But. Yeah. but anyways, I mean, we can't go into any more without getting really spoilery. It just stayed restra- just restrained enough while still being a cyberpunk novel, you know, mm-hmm. that I think that for me it just... I always felt like everything could happen. I didn't feel like what, you know, that that it was too fantastical at any point. Right, right. I agree. And what I, one thing too, I think is funny is that maybe some of the, I, I don't know what our demog- age demographic is who listens to this, you know, but I think that some of the the younger people, maybe you'll think that, the the recurring theme of AIDS being such a big deal in the book might seem uh, outdated or it won't seem as important to younger readers, but I think we're about as young as you can be to really still understand that worry about AIDS because mm-hmm. you were, what, 12 or 13 when this book came out and I was would have been 11 then. Yeah. And so, you know, I might have been young, but I still... Into the there wasn't a good like drug cocktail really until the mid nineties. Yeah, this was definitely discussed in school. It was definitely discussed all the time. Is AIDS prevention in fourth, fifth grade? Yeah, there was legitimate talks in school about this kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. and And it stuck too. Yeah, I mean, you. I don't remember hearing anything about any other STDs until you know. At that point in time, because AIDS was the one that could kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, about you know about the the mid to late nineties, you started getting the drug cocktails, and I mean, at this point, a you're not you're you're pretty highly unlikely in America if you have health insurance to die from AIDS. I mean, people currently have, you know, that they're show they're, who have HIV. That that are that aren't even um, contagious, you know, that, that aren't going to transmit the virus because their viral load is so low. Yeah, they're doing a great job now. If you take your pills every day, I mean, you'll do a pretty, you'll live yeah. pretty good long. I mean, life, obviously, but. there's other parts of the world where this is still such an issue, mm-hmm. but in this world, and when the when the novel's written, I really think that it was just such a good 
snapshot of how the world was at that time. Mm -hmm. I just really loved this book. Yeah, it was a good book. It was a really good book. I felt entertained for throughout, as I've said, but I also, I think because it stayed realistic, I felt a little bit sad about how the world was, you know, and and I think maybe because of how I worry that the world, our world could go, you know, could Mm -hmm. could go this way with income inequality, that it really did make me think throughout. And especially I think that if it had been too fantastical, that I would have had a harder time worrying about that stuff. Right, right. I agree. So, yeah, I really liked it. You know, I mean, I think, you know, it was it was just very entertaining, kind of a quick read, not a very long read. Um, no, 300 pages. Yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, I recommend it to people to read if they're into cyberpunk. I mean, cyberpunk's one that I'm kind of, it's grown on me. I mean, I don't think you can do, here's a question for you. Can you do a cyberpunk that's not a dystopia? It's like a bird without feathers. Other than penguins, you know, you you have to. It's like dystopia. Cyberpunk almost equals dystopia in a way. Well, I think it has to. And even if you had, you could maybe do do one where the um where you get the Stepford Wives, but you still have that dystopian undercurrent, like people are being their minds are being controlled. You know, mm-hmm. to think that things the world is great. Yeah, I don't think you can do a non-dystopian cyberpunk. If yeah. someone thinks you can, then uh, and you listen to this, then uh, you let us know. Yeah, go ahead, challenge, write a book, and then you know, <laughs> you will just I'll come on here and I'll prostrate my, myself before you and beg my beg your forgiveness that you proved <laughs> me wrong. You know, but it kind of has to be, and you ha- kind of have to have that gritty, ugly undercurrent, and it has to ha- involve like you know a lot of computer stuff. This one, unlike the other ones I've read, the main character is not a hacker. The main character no. is a thief. Yeah, and and the other one, hackers a cop. involved though. There's hackers in this, but yeah, well, and the other one's a cop who doesn't mm-hmm. know anything either. Yeah, and so so it's kind of told from a perspective of the non-hackers. The hackers definitely play a role, especially near the end. Yeah, but but it's not like there's a lot more hacking in like Neuromancer. Neuromancer is very hacky. Snow Crash is very hacky. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Snow Crash, a good portion of the book takes place in the virtual world. Mm-hmm. There's no, I mean, there's not a whole lot of that in this. Yeah. This, and I, I think that maybe that's part of why, I, you know, that was for some, if you want that um, virtual world, then this maybe isn't the novel for you as far as Cyberpunk goes. But I really feel like, especially if you're in your 30s or 40s and you haven't, read a lot of cyberpunk like I hadn't that maybe this would be a, a, a good novel to get into because of that it's I felt like it was a good that it had a, a good tech level and it had a good level of reality it didn't go so out there mm-hmm. and I felt like it made me it just kept me in the story because of that mm-hmm. it was relatable to me yeah it was definitely relatable yeah. and that's something that and some of the few other um, cyberpunk novels I've read isn't the case mm-hmm. as much. I have a hard time thinking that you know that things are going to go the way they need to go for some of those other books to happen and still be dystopian. Mm-hmm. But um, Barry, what else would you like to talk about with the novel? Do you think there's anything we need to talk about? I don't well, know if I we think... did a great job with 
getting into the synopsis. I think we covered it. You know, we gave you the premise there, and I think we gave you our opinions of it. And you know, there's some other interesting characters that you'll meet when you read the novel. Some people that have been on the bridge for a while. Some other former boyfriend of Chevette. I mean, there's some good minor characters too, and there's some other good, good scenes. I mean, I I've, I was thoroughly entertained by it, and I think he definitely has his thumb on pop culture yep. and he definitely has his thumb on you know where things have been going and i really think you know it's almost like i know people a lot of times read books they people have a propensity to read books that are new but like i think almost think like william gibson's more hip now than when he first came out like this cyberpunk because of the world's kind of Caught turning to into his world and it's like Almost at some point, it won't even be science fiction. It'll just be it'll just be contemporary fiction here. Yeah, and it's funny too because I didn't know a lot about William. I'd heard of William Gibson and I'd heard of Neuromancer, mm-hmm. but I hadn't necessarily heard of Virtual Light. And it's not you know this isn't the genre that I generally tend to read. But he has is just so influential out, even outside of literature. You know in how many people use the term cyberspace or, you know, or right. think that way, even if you don't say the word <laughs> maybe as much anymore, but the, it, some of the things that he, in the, in the matrix, things like that, you know, that are just huge pop culture wise. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is a novel that people should read. I, I think that, that you're better off as a person for having read it, you know, while still being entertained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's something that you can't always say with some with fantasy, maybe. But I think that you can really say that with this novel, that and I don't feel like it hits you over the head either. It doesn't make the people. A lot of the people on the bridge are there. They want to be there. You know, yeah, you don't feel like you're getting preached to. No, I don't feel like that, and I I think that that's important for for my enjoyment of it. Even if I am the kind of person that agrees, you know, maybe with with the ideology, that or the, or the you know the themes that he's throwing out there, I, I don't want to feel like I'm being beaten over the head with it. Mm-hmm. So now, how would you rate it on a five star? Okay, I really liked it. You know, I think you know the ending and you know, some of the other novels I've read. I'd have to. I'm going to give it a good four. I'm going to give it a four stars. Um, I think you know, like maybe if it could, it could have gotten a five, if you know the um. Like the motif, the main motif in the in the book paid off in a bit more interesting way, and if like the climax was better, or a few other a few other minor issues I had that like aren't even worth getting into, but I think you know it's a four, and four is good, right? Four is pretty good, and it's it's definitely worth a read. It's not going to be one of like, oh man, this is one of the best books I've ever read though, but it was good. <coughs> And I think we're about to hit the first time that I loved a book better than Barry did yeah. that we uh, that we did together. I'm going to give this a five star. Oh wow! For cool. me, cool. I just felt that this was a book that, in my opinion, for the way I have my tastes of cyberpunk, which admittedly aren't, you know, I'm not a huge cyberpunk person, but for me, this was as about as well done as a cyberpunk could for my tastes. I want a book that's relatable that is still dystopian but i don't feel is so dystopian that i with still having the tech that i just don't think it would be possible you mm-hmm. know for that to be the case i felt like the tech was appropriate i felt like the the way the society was run wasn't so crazy and out there you know and i, I just for me things were done the right way for my personal tastes you know and the way that i would that i i imagine that this a cyberpunk dystopian world 
would really happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you know you can get that crazy level of tech, but I, I want it to be in a non-Earth, like not our human. You know, I don't want to be thinking that it's in a book where it's 2015 or 20, you know, 2020 maybe if we're doing or 2025 if we're doing it now, and have a dystopian world where the tech level is just you know massively ahead of where 99% of the population lives, you know? And so I think that for me, things were just done so well. Even if the ending isn't the best ending I've ever seen, I thought it was clever still, you know? And maybe that's more realistic, the way the ending is, that, you know, it's not uh, just crazy explosions and things like that. I don't know. For me, it just did it. Yeah. It was a good book. Uh, <laughs> it made me feel, you know, kind of uh, di- not hopeful of the future, I guess. Yeah. Made me feel like I was almost looking at a mirror, you know. But it did make me feel entertained, too. And, um, yeah, I don't know what other feelings I have right now. <laughs> yeah. It didn't make me feel hungry. Didn't it? It didn't make me feel hungry. Now, Snow Crash made me feel hungry. I mean, we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah. But. Maybe it was because we ate such a giant amount of pasta. Yeah, we had a lot of pasta. Yeah. It's pretty good pasta. That's good sausage. I really like that sausage. Yeah, Italian food and cyberpunk novels. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) 